we've been around a while now leading this community and thank you for what an amazing lot we all are. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have got uh, people around you who aren't Christians but who think they know about the Bible. Um, I had one such person who said to me, oh the Bible is just a long list of don'ts. Now in this passage, the passage we've just read, it actually is exactly that. Um, there are three don'ts. I hope you noticed them as we read together. There are three things that Paul says have no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil. But each one comes with a but. And I'm afraid this did remind me of a talk. Many years ago, we, we were um, on a team planting a little church in London, and a young man was doing his first ever talk, and he stood up the front and he said, tonight, I want to show you three big butts. <laughs> and people's minds, you could tell, they were kind of distracted. I'm not sure they listened to anything else he said. But the truth is, these three don'ts do come with three butts. <laughs> and the thing is, what these don'ts are doing is they are not at all reducing life down to a list of things you shouldn't do as Christians. They are actually inviting you and I into living life as an absolute revolutionary. They are inviting you to live life by the radical, upside down ethic of Jesus Christ. They are inviting you and me into a magnificent and significant, a glorious, a non-conformist, a counter-cultural way of life. Day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice. And in this passage in particular, we get right down to the nitty gritty. And in particular, you will have heard us uh, picking up on in that passage as we read it together. Paul is looking at... When, what happens when you are confronted with people who hurt you, people who hate you, people who wrong you, when they make it their aim to bring you down, make you feel small, destroy you. And in collaboration with the Holy Spirit, this whole chapter has been leading us into knowing and grasping that we get to renew our minds, we get to think differently, we get to literally make new pathways in our brains so that new choices and new habits become a, a default setting for a way of life that lets the kingdom of God fall on earth as in heaven. So it is a glorious thing we're being invited into as we end looking at this chapter together today. So the first don't comes in verse 17, and it says, don't repay evil for evil. That's in other places in the Bible. You can find it in Proverbs chapter 20. But we do have language, don't we, in our everyday around getting even, getting our own back. It's payback time. Let's get them back. But what Paul's saying is don't repay evil for evil, but do what is good, do what is right, do what is honourable in the eyes of everyone. Now this 
doesn't mean, and this is important to hear this, it doesn't mean abandoning the good that is pursuing justice with everything that we have. It doesn't mean abandoning the concept that wrongdoers should be punished according to the law. But it does mean abandoning personal revenge. It does mean abandoning that urge to get back at someone who has hurt you. And whether that looks like trying to bring someone down because they've injured you or wronged you, or maybe for some of us, it is simply spreading and passing on a bit of bad news about how that person has failed or fallen short, just making sure we pass it along if we get an opportunity to get our own back. Now in verse 17, what Paul is saying is don't plot and plan and wait for a chance to get them back. Plot and plan to do the honourable thing in return. So if someone has done something bad, something mean, something evil to you, Paul's saying don't provoke them in return. Don't escalate the whole situation. Don't even simply try not to let it get to you. His question to us, his challenge to us is, is there something you could do to have a positive impact And you don't have to look very far to find that Jesus enacted this in his words and in his deeds. He didn't hit back. If you think about what he did in actually going to the cross, he offered a gift. He offered grace. He offered forgiveness to those actually nailing him to the cross. And his teaching in the Gospels is, is not, not difficult uh, to notice. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And verses 17 and 18 have an interesting public aspect to them, I think. Because he repeats, in the sight of all, live at peace with all. And there is a public dimension to how we react and respond to being wronged that opens up an opportunity to impact people for good. So it's not just about the person who's wrong, wronged you. Your response will and can have an amazing influence for good in the wider world. I was always struck by when, back in 1987, a man called Gordon Wilson's daughter, Marie, was killed in that Enniskillen bombing, if you remember. And she, with her dad, was buried in the rubble, and they held hands as she died. And when he was interviewed, not many hours after she died, he said, I bear no ill will, I bear no grudge, I will pray for these men tonight and every night. And I saw years later an interview with the man who had interviewed George Wilson and he said, I 
genuinely thought he was the nearest I would ever get to being in the presence of a saint. These words may have been among the most remembered from the decades of conflict in Northern Ireland, offered by an ordinary, but yet extraordinary man. What about your neighbours? What about your colleagues at work? What about your wider family, your flatmates, your, yeah, your workmates? What impact will your response to being warned have on the all that, that is your world? Second, we come in verse 19. Don't take revenge. Don't retaliate. And the but there is but give place. Literally, it says give place place to wrath, which every commentator has wrestled with, but everybody comes out with the same interpretation that it's talking about leaving room for God. Wrath, it's like wrath with a capital <laughs> W. Give room, leave room for God's wrath. And first, there's a little key there, I think, because uh, in different translations, it translates it different ways. But when he says, my dear friends there, it actually says, beloved, beloved. And I think it's a key for us to how you and I are free not to need to pay back, not to be driven by getting even. It's because we know that we are beloved, we are loved. It is settled in, the, in a sense of our value, in a sense of our identity. You are loved. Paul, I think, introduces another crucial idea here. And it's that we can justify revenge, some of us, under the guise of meeting out judgment that wrongdoers deserve or executing justice that is deserved by this evildoer. But God is still saying the same thing. He's saying don't take Revenge. You don't need to because God will see to it. It is his prerogative. He will set things right as and when he sees fit. So leave it with him. And again, Paul quotes this verse from Deuteronomy 32-35, which says, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine is mine. The righting of wrongs and judgment on wickedness is not a wrong thing, but it's a God thing. Let's for a moment think about the wrath of God. I know Christians who have tried to eradicate the wrath of God from the Bible. Their question is, how can God be angry if he is loving? It's a good question. Good question. But listen, I've been thinking about this this week. And I've got more and more excited about the wrath of God. God's anger, surely, is precisely grounded in his righteous and loving nature. It is the right response of a good and holy being to all that is wrong and evil in the world. God hates abuse. God hates oppression. He is angry about injustice. 
relieved and happy that that is the case. And if you are a victim of hate and evil, God is angry about that. He cannot look the other way and brush it under the carpet. One day, those that have perpetrated evil with no remorse and no repentance will be accountable for their actions before God Almighty, who is the judge of all. In Hebrew, there are a couple of words, apparently, for anger that get bolted together. And they are words for hot and for nose. Someone who is angry is someone with a hot nose. I thought about that, and I thought, we have some things a bit like that, don't we, where we say, my blood is boiling. Or we say, there's steam coming out of our ears. We associate anger with heat, don't we? And in the Old Testament, you'll remember it often says in Exodus and then right through the Bible, it says God is compassionate. God is full of steadfast love and God is slow to anger. So the picture and the words literally mean God has long nostrils. God is long of nose. And what that tells us is that yes, God is angry about some things. But this is important. His anger is not impetuous. His anger is not unpredictable. His anger is measured and directed. And some of us have experienced anger, haven't we, that is out of control. But God's nature is loving. God's nature is compassionate. And that is why he is angry about evil and injustice. And he doesn't fly off the handle. But he is angry about evil and injustice in our world. And I know this might sound odd to say, but I have come to the conclusion that you can trust God's wrath. You may have heard of a great theologian called Miroslav Wolf. He said this, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. So listen, if that is God's job, righting wrongs in the world, setting things right, that's God's job, then what is our job? And verse 20 has this radical concept that Paul just drops in. Um, it says, feed your enemy if they're hungry. <laughs> Give them a drink if they're thirsty. And this really odd thing uh, pops in there. And again, it comes um, earlier on in the Bible. But it says, you'll heap coals on the head of your enemy. Now, have you ever wondered what on earth that means? I certainly have. And I, I remember coming across that as, as a child. And think, well, I thought it was rather 
I think I was rather intrigued by that idea. Um, but yeah, heaping coals on someone's head. The thing is, it cannot mean what it sounds like it means. It cannot mean don't take revenge, but hey, heap coals on someone's head, because that sounds to us like revenge, doesn't it? And as I delved into this a little bit, it, it transpires that there was an Egyptian ritual that when someone was truly sorrowful, when they had done something wrong and wanted to show that they were remorseful and penitent, they literally carried a pan of coals on their heads. So in summary, your response to people who have wronged you, your non-retaliation and your practice of kindness should stir up remorse and shame in those that have wronged you. That will lead them to God. So in that sense, the intention and the motivation is to see them healed, see them made whole, see them come to know your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So your job is to see your enemies as far as you are able come into God's kingdom, to encounter Jesus in and through you. And to see them transformed by the power of God's love. And you know, as we speak about a topic like this, honestly, we stand here today in awe of Christians who have gone before us, Christians around the world who have enacted these values in the face of enemy, um, enemy action that we can hardly comprehend. Many of you will have heard of Richard Wurmbrandt, who was a pastor in communist Romania in the 1940s. And he continued to announce the good news about Jesus, knowing the probable cost. And in 1948, he was kidnapped and imprisoned and kept in solitary confinement where the guards wore cloth shoes so that the silence and the isolation would have the maximum detrimental impact on the prisoners. And so the only people they saw or heard were their torturers. And he describes years later, he was brought out of solitary confinement and put in cells with hundreds of others where prisoners were beaten and hung on crosses and other prisoners forced to kneel and worship them. I'm not sure we could even endure hearing what tortures they have endured and are enduring as we speak. But this man, Richard von Brandt, says this, and then the miracle happened. When it was at its worst, when we were tortured as never before, we began to love those who tortured us. Just as a flower, when you bruise it under your foot, rewards you with its perfume. The more we were mocked and tortured, the more we pitied and loved our torturers. Many have asked, how can you love someone who is torturing you? He says, by looking at men, not as they are, but as they will be. I could also see in our persecutors a Saul of Tarsus, a future Apostle Paul. Many officers of the secret police to whom we witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison for having found our Christ. And although we were whipped as Paul was, in our jailers we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask, what must I do to be saved? 
And it was in prison that we found the hope of salvation for the communists. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility towards them. In communist prisons, the idea of a mission to communists was born. And he says, the gates of heaven are not closed for the communists, neither is the light quenched for them. They can repent like anyone else, and we must call them to repentance. Only love can change the communist and the terrorist. Wow. <laughs> so third and finally, verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And those of you who know I like a sandwich in my Wherever I can find one in the Bible, it's called a chiasm. But if you look at verse 17a, you get, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then in 21, you get, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's like a double evil sandwich, if I may say. <laughs> uh, but I think the point is that, um, you know, there's this explosive goodness that is going to push back evil in this world. So evil is real, evil is powerful, evil is alive and well in our world. But the Bible tells us that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the evil one. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that has been accomplished. It is finished. And in the end, evil has been and will be overcome with good. The final score, if you like, has been settled and fixed. But day to day, the battle rages. And we, each of us, play our part in seeing evil pushed back. And you have everything you need to do that. Day to day, then, we have a choice. In a hostile world, with values that are contrary to the will of God, if you remember where this chapter started, we are pressurized to conform to this age, to go with the flow, to give in, give up. And in this particular instance, that might look like treating people badly or finding ways to get back at those who hurt us. To conform rather than be transformed, as it said in that verse two of chapter 12. But Paul urges us not just to resist that, but to go on the offensive and take steps in the opposite spirit. Don't be overcome by evil that comes against each of us, but be an agent of good in the world. Conquering evil is not to do with retaliation. <laughs> If there is a winning, you are winning by doing good in return. I once came across Robbie Dawkins. You might remember him. He used to speak sometimes at New Wine. He was a wonderful, um, large American. He used to mop his brow um, every, every couple of minutes. But he said something that I've always remembered. He said he always felt like, if he felt like um, he was due to do, you know, go on a healing mission or something, it got cancelled at the last minute, he felt that was like a goal scored uh, for evil. 
And so what he would do, even if he couldn't go to this mission, he would go immediately instead to the hospital and offer to pray for people and see whether he could heal the sick in the name of Jesus. So he would deliberately seek out a payback in the kingdom. So we will each find a way, won't we, to push back on the power of evil with the far greater power of good that is at work in and through you and me because of the spirit at work in us. And I wonder, is it a thing? Can you, you know, like you feel like evil, the powers of evil set out to discourage you and to demotivate you. If, it, if that's real, then there's nothing they would rather do than see you and I taken out, pushed back, conforming to the pattern of this age. But is there such a thing as discouraging and demotivating the devil? <laughs> is there such a thing as discouraging and demotivating demonic and evil forces that set out to spread evil in the world? Could it be, I wonder, that we could plan to do good in return for evil in such a way that good gets released into the world and the powers of evil in this world are pushed back. They're the ones who are discouraged. They're the ones who lose motivation. Would that not be good? Yes. I wonder if then, rather than being overcome and discouraged by evil, could we help each other to overcome evil with good? Because God's promise in this chapter is that we have what we need to do that. We have what we need to be agents of good in this world, whatever comes against us. Let's take a minute just to ask the Lord. Lord, I don't want to be someone who's overcome by evil. I want to overcome evil with good. Holy Spirit. We need you, God. Maybe we've become tired and discouraged. Holy Spirit, would you show us? How to receive again what you've given us to enable us to be powerful agents of good in the world. Come, Holy Spirit.